Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we'll get started with Al-Ma'mun's reign in earnest. Administration during his first five years in power, the period he spent in Maru, is generally attributed to his wazir, Fadl ibn Sahel, who ruled the roost at court and beyond. It is only after Al-Ma'mun's return to Baghdad that our sources find something to say about the man, much of it effusive praise. We'll note his stellar reputation, but we'll keep our focus on the critical challenges facing the new caliph and how he chose to address them. Episode 58, Al-Ma'mun. Before we get started, I just want to say a quick word about the release schedule. I know I missed a drop in November, and while I'll try to do better going forward, I can't really promise it'll be the last time. In fact, I'm almost certainly going to miss January as well. The material from here on out is much less familiar than what came before, and even when the history is straightforward and easy to summarize, I still have to read ahead so I can frame the narrative correctly. Despite these sporadic delays, we're still creeping towards the end of our show. Al-Tabari's collection of oral testimony, our main source, ends in the year 915, which is less than a century away at this point. Al-Mas'udi's history extends until about 950, but it's not reliable enough to use on its own. I estimate we have another 20 episodes left, give or take a few. By then, Caliph will have become a position of limited, symbolic authority, and Arab history will have progressed from the oral to the written phase. Okay, so with that bit of housekeeping out of the way, let's return to our latest Caliph. Now that he's on the throne, we should briefly go over his upbringing once more. Abdullah al-Ma'mun, Ibn Harun al-Rashid, is said to have been born on the day his uncle Musa al-Hadi passed away, and his father became caliph. Whether or not that's true, it is a clear mark of approval from our sources that they make sure to note as much. Mentioning him in the same breath as two other caliphs is their way of suggesting that he was fated to lead the ummah. We'll find plenty of gushing testimonials about his reign and character, and so when it comes to al-Ma'mun, our task will be to investigate what this reputation is based on and decide whether or not it was well-earned. Al-Ma'mun's misfortune started early, when his mother died in labor, robbing him of an irreplaceable advocate in court and life. He grew up in the care of his stepmom instead, the Abbasid Zubaydah, whose aspirations for her own son, Al-Amin, and her influence with the caliph and clan, ensured that Al-Ma'mun spent his childhood in a privileged yet hostile environment. The two brothers received the same education, but Al-Amin grew increasingly unruly after he realized that he could depend on his mother's influence to shield him from any serious consequences. By contrast, Al-Ma'mun was hardworking, dutiful, and respectful. While he had never been given his due regard as the caliph's eldest son, the neglect soured into mistreatment 
as the precocious young man began to outshine his brother, especially after al-Rashid first considered adding his name to the line of succession at the age of 12. Resentment towards him hardened following al-Rashid's shake-up in Mecca. As soon as the Abbasids regarded him as a real threat to al-Amin, they began to defame al-Ma'mun endlessly and with great panache. After the downfall of the Baramika and the ascendance of al-Fadl ibn Rabi'ah, the antagonism grew unbearable, and al-Ma'mun soon left unkind Iraq for unknown Khurasan. We find new details about the sort of social abuse al-Ma'mun endured in stories which applaud his capacity for forgiveness. He is said to have forgiven the Abbasid courtesan, who had once dubbed him al-Ma'foon, a crude pun on his name, meaning the half-wit. More admirably, he forgave al-Fadl ibn Rabi'ah, his father's hajib, who had instigated al-Ma'mun's own brother against him. Fadl had vanished when the great fitna stopped going his way, but then resurfaced during Ibrahim ibn al-Mahdi's short reign over renegade Iraq. He had nowhere left to hide after the caliph's return to Baghdad. He went to court to ask for a pardon and was swiftly granted one by the magnanimous caliph. On that occasion, al-Ma'mun said he remembered how he would greet his father's hajib respectfully whenever he saw him and how happy he was on the rare occasions in which he was acknowledged. There are other similar stories, but you get the idea. As a youth, al-Ma'mun was excluded, ignored, and insulted, but he held no grudges now that he had the power to exact revenge. We don't have a lot on his time in Khurasan, something our sources blame on Fadl ibn Sahil, who is said to have kept al-Ma'mun isolated in Maru. I wonder how true that is. I find that our sources have grown increasingly focused on Iraq since al-Mansur founded his capital, which betrays the perspective we're getting on these events. For our intents and purposes, the official story is that al-Ma'mun relied upon Fadl ibn Sahil in all things until the wazir's mysterious death in 818, a few days after the caliph set out for Baghdad to vanquish his uncle and reclaim the province of Iraq. This is where we'll pick up the thread today. The vanquishing part proved all too easy. Ibrahim ibn al-Mahdi went into hiding well before al-Ma'mun arrived in the city, and he stayed out of sight for a good seven years before he was captured by the caliph's men and officially pardoned by his forgiving nephew. The real challenge was what came next. Baghdad had not known peace for years, and the rest of the caliphate was in turmoil as well. In the south, Hashemite sympathizers in Mecca, Medina, and Yemen rose up after learning about the death of Ali ibn Musa. Eastern Khurasan had always been relatively peaceful, but the caliph's departure and his wazir's sudden end had led to grumbling from the region's powerful elites and invigorated existing independence movements at its furthest edges. To the north, there was an open insurrection in Azerbaijan, led by a sort of neo-Zoroastrian separatist. And finally, to the west, Syrian tribes avoided the caliphate, uniting instead around a local figure named Nasr ibn Shabath, while Egypt and beyond were caught up in their own internal problems. Faced with all these challenges, it was reasonable to expect the caliph to enlist all the help he could find, and rely heavily on al-Hasan ibn Fadl, perhaps even promote him from governor to wazir, the position his brother had held back in Maru. Instead, when the two met, 
Hassan ibn Sahel asked the caliph to allow him to step aside. Some narrations claim he was shaken by the death of his brother, but it's hard to say what prompted his resignation. Although al-Ma'mun badly needed commanders and administrators to put out the many fires burning across his caliphate, Hassan ibn Sahel's removal actually made things easier for the new caliph. For one thing, it meant he didn't have to defend an unpopular figure in Iraq, and that he could now count on the full cooperation of his clan and their loyalists. But beyond that, it enabled Tahir, the general who had defeated al-Amin's biggest forces in battle during the Great Fitna, to return to the scene. See, the first few years of al-Ma'mun's reign are generally termed his Sahlid phase, the period during which he relied entirely on the sons of Sahl for administering his caliphate. I've repeatedly cast doubt on the objectivity of our sources and still believe they exaggerate how much control Fadl had over the caliph, but broadly speaking, the label fits. Al-Hasan ibn Sahl's resignation marks the end of the Sahlid phase and the beginning of the Tahirid one, in which Al-Ma'mun comes to rely heavily on Tahir and his sons to mend the damage wrought by the great fitna. The general had been sent west by the Sahlids to deal with Nasr ibn Shabath in Syria, but a lack of resources had forced him to retreat to Raqqa. Unable to progress against the Syrian tribes, and unwilling to return to Hassan ibn Sahil's domain in Iraq, he remained holed up in Harun al-Rashid's old administrative capital for a good while. But now that al-Ma'mun was back in Baghdad, Tahir could finally shine once again. There was certainly no shortage of battles to be won, but the biggest asset Tahir brought to the table wasn't his military experience, it was the strong relationships he had built with the Abna. These nominally Iraqi forces went over to his side in droves during the Great Fitna, and he eventually used their headquarters in Baghdad as his base when he was laying siege to the city. After he left for Syria, they resisted Hassan ibn Sahel's administration. Even those of them who joined his forces proved to be a riotous liability. Although they were ready to accept al-Ma'mun now that he had returned to the capital, they didn't really have an inn at court, and that's where Tahir came in. He could speak on their behalf and ensure the caliph of their loyal service. For a concrete example of this, we need look no further than Khuzayma ibn Khazim, a leader among the Abna who had tried to remain loyal to al-Amin for as long as possible, but ultimately he worked with Tahir to bring an end to the city's siege by helping his men move in on the caliph's palace. Khuzayma retained his status during the chaotic years that followed, and the respected 90-year-old sought Tahir's assurances of continued patronage for his loyalists before pledging to support al-Ma'mun. There's some confusion as to the timing of all these events, but Tahir was summoned for an audience with al-Ma'mun soon after his arrival in Iraq, certainly by the year 820. This is when we hear about the caliph's first administrative decisions, and they were shockingly good. I realized that I still thought of al-Ma'mun as a sheltered child, and so it is probably a helpful corrective to remind everyone that he was 34 years old by now. He was appointed to Khurasan as a teenager, but the Great Fitna didn't start until a couple years after his brother had become caliph, when they were both 25. That war took about four years, from 811 to 815, 
meaning that Al-Ma'mun was between 29 and 34 during the Sahlid phase of his reign when he resided in Maru. Now that he was flying solo in Baghdad, the choices he made showed him to be a pragmatic and realistic administrator. By way of acknowledging their role in ruling Iraq, he appointed Abbasid in charge of Basra and its surroundings. Rather than send troops to fight against the people of Mecca and Medina, Al-Ma'mun appointed a Hashemite as governor of the holy cities, extending an olive branch to both the Prophet's clan and its many supporters in the Arabian Peninsula. Finally, and most importantly, when he summoned Tahir to Baghdad, the caliph didn't simply task him with fighting new wars. Instead, he listened to his seasoned general, and together they worked out a plan to deal with the many obstacles that lay ahead of them. The issue was that Tahir wanted to return to the east, but the caliph needed men in Iraq and Syria to secure those provinces. The pair crafted a compromise, a real win-win-win for Tahir, al-Ma'mun, and the Ummah. Tahir was appointed governor of the east, replacing a cousin of the Sahlids who was still in charge back in Maru. On top of taking care of any rebellions in greater Khorasan, he was to send revenues back to Baghdad to pay for the maintenance of the Abna. I find this arrangement especially satisfying as it addresses the original conflict which precipitated the great fitna. The Abna had wanted a share of Khorasan's revenue, and now they were going to get it, albeit through a local, Tahir, instead of one of their own. Tahir had to raise taxes in the province and deal with the resistance from the locals, which at times boiled over into disobedience. Payment of their salaries ensured that the caliph had men in Iraq. When it came to Syria, Tahir promised al-Ma'mun that his eldest son, Abdullah, was as capable a commander as he, and would stay behind in Raqqa to become its governor. His main task would be to deal with the Syrian tribal leader Nasr ibn Shabath, whose confederation made it impossible to effectively administer the province. With that, Tahir took his two other sons and returned to Khorasan, where he served as governor for only a couple of years before passing away in Maru in 822, after which his son Talha succeeded him. I feel compelled to note something about how Tahir's death is presented in our sources. See, the Tahirids will go on to rule Greater Khorasan for a long time, by the end of which the province will have become practically independent. It is probably due to these developments that we hear rumors that claim that on the night before he died, Tahir had refused to include al-Ma'mun in his public prayer, or that he spoke his last words in Persian. I find this sort of material not only melodramatic, but factually premature. For now, the Tahirids had strong institutional links to Iraq. For example, a nephew of Tahir had been appointed governor of Baghdad to facilitate official control of the relationships established by his uncle. Independence was still much further out into Khurasan's future. Abdullah ibn Tahir will take us a while to cover, so it's best we say a quick word about other conflicts before focusing on him. There was a Hashemite rebellion in Yemen, despite al-Ma'mun's conciliatory choice of governor, but that didn't really go anywhere. Basra proved too much for the Abbasids to handle. Although the Iraqis liked them well enough, the Great Fitna had led a group of people called the Zut 
to terrorize a large swath of land surrounding the city. I'm not 100% sure, but they seem to have been subcontinental gypsies or pirates of sorts. Al-Ma'mun appointed a leader from the east to deal with the situation, and we don't hear anything else about them until the reign of his successor. Hostility in Azerbaijan proved far more difficult to curb. Babak, a local who had organized and led the resistance against the caliphate, defeated his much larger foe time and again. The secret to his success was that he rarely went on the offensive and maintained an insurmountable position in his eponymous fort atop Ardabil. The caliph didn't have forces to send against this upstart, but he farmed the work out to any commander who thought he stood a chance. The deal was simple. Take out the rebels, and you got to rule the province and control its taxes. There were quite a few takers, but none managed to best Babak, who was both well-supported by the local population and a gifted commander in his own right. Finally, there were a few anti-caliphate movements in Khurasan, which made them Talha ibn Tahir's problem. One of them was an independence movement in Ushrusana, a distant principality in modern-day Tajikistan. After some brief success, it was handled with the assistance of a local prince, but we'll cover that in more detail some other time, as it will become unexpectedly influential in another decade or so. There were also some Karajite movements for Talha to deal with, one of which cost him his life in Sajistan. After six years of service as governor of the east, he was replaced by his brother, Abdullah ibn Tahir, in 828. But let's go back to 820, when the 22-year-old Abdullah still had an illustrious career ahead of him. The young commander had just been made governor of Raqqa and tasked with defeating the tribal leader, Nasr ibn Shabath. The problem with tribal armies wasn't their size, it was their superior mobility. They were difficult to pin down and only confronted you in battle when it was to their favor. A skilled leader like Nasr made good use of that advantage, and he had thus managed to elude the caliphate for years. City officials in the various Syrian urban centers were prepared to accept al-Ma'mun's authority, but there would be no peace without the tribes on board. Nasr demanded his own men be put in charge of these cities, a non-starter for al-Ma'mun. Luckily, now that Iraq and Khurasan had been sorted out, Abdullah ibn Tahir had some motivated, well-paid troops. Furthermore, he pursued local alliances, something he learned from his father, and within a couple of years his armies were large enough to cow Nasr's supporters, and the tribal confederation began to shrink. It took Abdullah three more years of chasing Nasr around Syria and Mesopotamia before he cornered the tribal leader in a fort, where he was forced to sue for peace in exchange for his safety. Nasr was relocated to Baghdad, and his stronghold was demolished in late 824. Having defeated the caliphate's foes in all Western Asia, with the exception of Azerbaijan, Abdullah ibn Tahir was next tasked with pacifying Egypt. There were multiple sides at war in that province, so let's take a minute to break it down. Its governor early in Al-Amin's reign had been Harsama's son but he was removed after the Great Fitna got started. His partisans refused to acknowledge the governor sent by Baghdad, and so pro- and anti-Ma'mun factions were born. 
While the Arabs fought over which Abbasid was the true caliph, independence movements among the local Egyptians living outside the Arab capital of Fustat took advantage of their rivalry and organized their ranks. Finally, Alexandria had fallen to foreign soldiers, from Umayyad Andalusia of all places. These weren't an invasion force sent by the emir. They were a band of several thousand exiled renegades who chanced upon the city in a state of disarray and took it over upon arrival. Abdullah ibn Tahir made use of all these divisions. He supported those who were ready to accept al-Ma'mun, and together they subdued their foes, then the rebellious locals, and finally they expelled the occupiers of Alexandria. The remarkable pace at which he accomplished his mission is both a testament to his abilities and a sure sign that the central government was functioning efficiently once again. He secured Egypt, but not Ifriqiya. Tunis had become part of the Aghlabid domain after that dynasty had imposed its own peace upon it, following the chaos of the Great Fitna. In 828, Abdullah ibn Tahir was recalled from Egypt and sent to face the undefeated Babak in Azerbaijan. He made his way to the province but received a new set of orders before he had a chance to go to battle. His brother had died fighting against Karajites in Khorasan, and he was to replace him as its governor. I'll upload a map of the expanded province outlining all the lands governed by this skilled commander on the show's website, thecaliphs.com. His responsibilities from here on out were a lot like his father's. He would quell any movements against the caliphate and manage the relationship with the armies in Baghdad by paying their salaries. Abdullah's departure to Khurasan broke the Tahirid grip on power in the caliphate. Al-Ma'mun still relied upon the House of Tahir to govern the east and pay for the maintenance of any Khurasaniya left in Iraq, but the caliph also identified a couple of Abbasids he could use for both military and civil command. With Abdullah gone, there were now vacancies in Iraq and Syria to be filled, and the caliph appointed his son and half-brother respectively. I don't enjoy teasing subjects like this, but we'll discuss these two in more detail another day. For now, all we need to note was that al-Ma'mun's son led troops in Iraq and Mesopotamia, while his brother commanded the loyalty of a small but effective army, making him a perfect choice of governor for troublesome provinces like Syria and Egypt. In recognition of their newfound importance to his administration, the caliph gifted his half-brother, son, and Abdullah ibn Tahir half a million gold dinar each. Our sources add that never before nor since had the prudent caliph been so open-handed. While we are on the tangent of lavish extravagance, I need to tell you about the caliph's wedding. After things in the caliphate had begun to stabilize, sometime between 825 and 827, Al-Ma'mun paid a visit to his old friend Hassan ibn Sahel in Wasit. The ex-governor of Iraq remained in the city despite how the locals felt about him, either because the caliph had ordered him to stay, or because his residence in a sumptuous estate insulated him from the resentment of the Iraqis. Despite this deep and abiding hatred for Hassan ibn Sahel, Al-Ma'mun gave him the incredible honor of accepting his daughter's hand in marriage. It's a match which did absolutely nothing for the caliph politically. In fact, 
willingly tying himself to such a despised figure could only hurt. But he went ahead anyway. The only explanations to be found are rooted in love. Either desire for Buran bin Hassan, or gratitude for Hassan's friendship and guidance, at a time when Al-Ma'mun had nobody in his corner but the Sahlids. Hassan was beyond ecstatic at this match, and he threw money at this wedding until it made it into the history books. We hear that everyone in the caliph's party were given prizes, ranging from horses to slaves, mansions, and even entire villages. For 40 days, Hassan paid for all their expenses, spending over 50 million dirham in the process. Some sources say that he gave so much that the caliph felt obliged to compensate him, either with tax revenue or by gifting him Jafar al-Barmaki's old pleasure palace in Baghdad. Hassan lived there for a few years, made extensive repairs to the vast estate, then gifted it to his daughter Buran before making his way back east for the last time. I thought a brief break from all the warring would be refreshing before wrapping up with analysis, but we still have time to mention one final battlefront today. Luckily for the Ummah and the Abbasids, the Byzantines were distracted by their own internal affairs during the Great Fitna, and they couldn't capitalize on its chaos nor the caliph's absence during the Sahlid phase of his reign. In 821, after al-Ma'mun had returned to Baghdad, he concluded a non-aggression treaty with Thomas the Slav, a mutinous general who had taken control of the empire's lands bordering the caliphate. But just because the Syrian-Mesopotamian border was quiet didn't mean there was nothing else going on. The peace between the two powers was first upset by the Andalusian renegades Abdullah ibn Tahir had expelled from Alexandria. Unwilling to face him in battle, all 10,000 of them had boarded boats and set sail, making landfall in nearby Crete. They wrested that land from the empire the same way they had taken Alexandria, and defeated the weak armies sent to stop them. They would remain a thorn in the side of the Byzantine state for several decades to come. The year after the conquest of Crete, the Aghlabid emir sent his own forces to take Sicily, and although it would require over a century for the entire island to fall, their arrival dealt a powerful blow to the Byzantines. Then, in 830, several years after the death of Thomas the Slav, the big guns came out when al-Ma'mun decided to personally lead the summer raid against the empire. There were several good reasons for this decision. Marching a large army west would impress and intimidate any would-be rebels in the Ummah, especially prevalent in both Syria and Egypt. It was also a good way of building up his commanders in the public eye. For this campaign, he used his son and half-brother as his generals. Abbas ibn al-Ma'mun had gained some battlefield experience governing Jazira, while his uncle had earned a reputation as a capable commander in the west. Finally, his own father, Harun al-Rashid, had repeatedly used war against the Byzantines as a way of boosting his own legitimacy. And now that the caliphate was once again in a position of strength, al-Ma'mun could afford to do the same. His campaign in 830 was limited but quite successful. The caliph's forces destroyed some forts and raided border communities for tribute. Byzantine resistance hardly comes up in that material at all. 
Some sources add that in an act of magnanimous mercy, Al-Ma'mun purchased all the civilians taken captive by his men for the hefty sum of 56,000 dinars and gave each one a gold dinar after setting them free. They love to exaggerate Al-Ma'mun's virtues, but this instance does track with the caliph's overall behavior, so it might actually be true. The previous emperor might have taken the border raid sitting down, but his son, Theophilus, had just ascended in 829, and he decided to respond to the Arab assault in person. He led his own incursion into the caliphate, attacking Tarsus and Masisa, and killing anywhere between 1,500 and almost 7,000, depending on who you read. Al-Ma'mun was furious, and he led the armies back into the empire in 831. His large host meant that most cities preferred to treat with the invaders, and our sources agree that the caliph showed great clemency to civilians. He and his generals were far less forgiving when it came to the military and they are reported to have destroyed over 30 forts during the second raid. Theophilus was undaunted, and he went on the offensive once again. He captured Tarsus, then triumphantly made his way back to his capital. The celebration proved premature, though, as Al-Ma'mun returned with his generals to exact revenge. To his credit, the emperor personally led the troops to meet them in battle, but the caliph's son Abbas defeated Theophilus's armies and forced him to agree to pay tribute to the caliphate and release all prisoners he had taken from the ummah. This was to be al-Ma'mun's final campaign. Our sources hint that another larger showdown was in the works when the caliph passed away in Tarsus the next year. With that, we should pause our narrative and reflect on all we covered today. Within five years of his homecoming to Baghdad, Al-Ma'mun managed to regain control of Iraq and Syria, and in another year or two, his forces had recaptured Egypt, all while swatting away various rebellions here and there. We shouldn't consider the prevalence of these movements against the caliphate as evidence of mismanagement. They had grown out of the power vacuum precipitated by the Great Fitna. The fact that Al-Ma'mun's armies made quick work of them now that he had taken the reins shows how effective he was at the helm. Sure, he didn't personally lead the fighting, but the credit for finding the right people for the right jobs goes entirely to him. Tahir and his sons, Abdullah especially, played an important part in Al-Ma'mun's success during this period. Although the Sahlid phase had been a disaster for the Ummah, it is clear from his marriage to Buran bint Hassan that the caliph bore no ill will towards them. But al-Ma'mun seems to have identified his own mistakes from that time, for he never took on another wazir the way he had Fadl ibn Sahil. Even when he came to rely upon Tahir and Abdullah, he always looked towards cultivating other sources of power so as to not grow too dependent on a single party. He empowered his son and half-brother for this reason as well, and their forces came to counterbalance the troops who relied on the Tahirids for their salaries. We'll say more about these two Abbasids when it's time to discuss Al-Ma'mun's succession. But considering all there is to cover about this caliph's reign, we probably won't get to it next time. For now, let's return our focus to the material we covered together today. 
The dozen years between 820 and 832 were filled with conflict for the Ummah. But it was also a period during which the state grew stronger and more secure. It's important to keep in mind that during this whole time, it was using force to bring the Ummah back under its control. This wasn't a united people fighting against a foreign enemy. It was a state imposing itself upon a tax base so that it could afford to operate. None of its generals were tribal elders whose Arab kin and loyalists had special exemptions and responsibilities. Its armies had common Arabs and non-Arabs alike, who made sure everyone paid their taxes on time so that they, in turn, would be able to collect their own salaries from the state. Some would argue that this represents a clear decline in Arab power, but it is a position I disagree with. While their political system no longer allowed the Arabs to bully other populations willy-nilly, it gave them something much more valuable in return. The medieval state enabled them to flourish socially, commercially, and intellectually, a far worthier fate in my opinion. Nasr ibn Shabath didn't think so. We're told that the Syrian tribal leader's stipulations to the caliph weren't merely to appoint some of his loyalists in charge of Syrian cities. He had gone on to demand the exclusion of all non-Arab elements from administrative and military positions and the reapplication of the poll tax on them to confirm their relegation to subjugated status. It is clear that the tribal elements of Arab society were dissatisfied with what the caliphate had become, but its urban populations reaped the benefits of having a state strong enough to enforce order and ensure stability. We won't get a lot out of going through the rest of the adversaries bested by the Abbasid armies. Kerijite disruptions, Hashemite movements, and calls for independence are nothing to write home about, and the rest were all pushovers, including the Byzantines. The one notable exception was Babak, whose rebellion in Azerbaijan outlasted al-Ma'mud's reign. Like many anti-Arab movements before it, our sources attribute heretical beliefs to its members and refer to them as a sect called the Khurramites. We limited our focus to military developments today, but luckily we have much more information on al-Ma'mun's reign. Having covered the nuts and bolts of how he put the caliphate back together, next time we will turn our attention to the most memorable elements of this esteemed figure, his philosophical reputation, and the infamous inquisition he decreed, here on the caliphs the rise and fall of Arab power.